0: Amen. A great song. We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as <clears throat> so we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today we're going to look at Jesus confronting us with very sobering words as he distinguishes between two paths in life just two and that every single person on earth is on one of these two paths. One leading to eternal life, and the other leading to eternal torment. Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read from the Legacy Standard Version. Hear the words of God. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it the gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now look to your word, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would do the work of regeneration, sanctification, encouragement, exhortation, Father, I pray that the words that I speak be the words that you have spoken here in your word, no more, no less, and that Christ would be honored and glorified in these next precious moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, In the year uh, 1678, there was a Baptist man by the name of John Bunyan, and he wrote a book. And this book was called Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you may have heard of it. This is considered the second best-selling book of all time outside of the Bible. It's been translated in over 200 languages, and since it was written, it has never been out of print. This book, if you've never read it, Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory written while John Bunyan was imprisoned for his faith. He tells the story of a dream that he had of a man named Christian who flees from his hometown called The City of Destruction, and sets upon a journey to the celestial city, which is heaven. Bunyan writes masterful allegory after allegory in this book, and it depicts the Christian life. And it starts with this character named Christian finding this book from the king, which is the Bible. And he reads it while he's in the city of destruction around other sinners, right? And he realizes that he has this heavy burden upon his back. And he doesn't know what to do with it. And then he realizes that the city where he lived was going to be destroyed. Well, he would read this book and he would weep in despair, not knowing what to do. Meanwhile, he would be ridiculed and mocked by his friends and even his own family. But he knew the truth. But he would weep. He would read it because... He didn't know what to do he knew he was in the city of destruction where it's depicting God's wrath was coming he knew he had this burden on his back he didn't know how to get rid of it until a man by the name of evangelist comes and tells him what to do and Christian says I believe all this what do I do and evangelist says you must flee you must flee from the wrath to come And Christian asks, where do I go? And evangelist points and says, do you see the wicked gate? Run straight towards it and do not look back. When you get there, knock and it will be told what to do. So Christian, knowing the truth, flees the city of destruction while his friend's Family and co workers are all snickering and mocking him as he is running with this huge burden on his back. Well, after a few trials and some wrong turns, he, he finally gets to the wicked gate and he knocks on it. There's a sign that says, Knock and it will be opened to you. Y'all that were here last week, that was our passage. Ask, seek, knock but when he knocks there's no answer so he knocks again nothing he keeps knocking now crying out he says may I enter here will he within open to worthless me though I have been an undeserving rebel then I I shall not fail to sing his lasting praise on high and he keeps knocking Finally, the door opens, and it's a man, his name is Goodwill, who represents Jesus Christ. Goodwill shows Christian the narrow way, and thus Christian begins his journey to the celestial city, which is heaven. This allegory of the wicked gate beautifully illustrates our passage today. As a matter of fact, the entire book, Pilgrim's Progress, illustrates our passage today. Christian, in this book, would need to stay on the narrow way if he were to make it to the celestial city. He would often come across what looks like an easier way off the narrow path, and he would go that way to his own mistake, and the good king would discipline him with hardships, even injuries, to bring him back to the narrow way. Our text today brings us face to face with the two and only two paths that all of mankind who have ever lived and are living today are on. For a fuller understanding of this text, however, especially for those who are new, newer to our Ministry. I want to briefly remind you of the context of the passage because it will help us have a deeper and fuller understanding of these two verses. The theme of the whole gospel of Matthew, if you recall, those of that have been with us, is the arrival of the king, is the king and his kingdom. Matthew primarily wrote to a Jewish audience and he wanted them to know that the king is here. The king of the Jews has arrived and he's brought his kingdom on earth <clears throat> from the start chapter 1 if you look back there's a genealogy here and this genealogy is purposeful to show that Jesus has the rightful heir to the throne he has come through the line of david and that's why this pro or this genealogy starts at abraham to go down to jesus showing that jesus is from the line of david which was prophesied that the king would come verses The genealogy in Luke, if you recall, actually goes all the way back to Adam because the primary audience of Luke was to the Gentile believers and Luke wanted to show the unbelievers, that Luke wanted to show the Gentile unbelieving world that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came to seek and save the lost. So his genealogy starts from Adam or ends at Adam. And Matthew's is just from Abraham because he's trying to tell the Jews, look, your king came. This is your king. And he brought the kingdom. Then you have chapter 2, when Jesus is born. The wise men, they come to visit who? The king. And it says in verse 2, that they are looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we have came to worship him. They came to worship the king. And then in chapter 3 and verse 2, we see John the Baptist. His whole ministry was summed up in these words Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The king has come, therefore, repent. Now, if you look at that word, the terminology Matthew uses is unique the kingdom of heaven. It's only used in Matthew's gospel. And it's used 32 times throughout the entire gospel. In chapter 4, when Jesus starts his ministry, look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. This starts his ministry after his temptation in the wilderness. And he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning it's here. I have brought the kingdom. I am the king. And then in the same chapter, verse 23, it says that Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the what? The gospel of the kingdom. Gospel there is the good news. Wait a second, Jesus hadn't died yet and rose again. Thought that was the good news. He was bringing the good news that the king has arrived. The king is here and the kingdom is here, therefore, Repent and believe. This is good news. So the theme we have in all of Matthew is the king and his kingdom. It's woven throughout the entire gospel. Uh, We won't turn there, but if you look at the parables in, in Matthew chapter 13, all the parables that Jesus gives are about this king and his kingdom. Who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. Each parable begins with this the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he describes it. And he describes who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. It's the parable of the soils. Which one had the good fruit? Which one was actually saved? You had the tares among the wheat. Again, you had who's in the kingdom, the wheat. Who's not in the kingdom, the tares or or the weeds. Then you have the mustard seed, which depicted the growth of Christ's kingdom that the kingdom of heaven would be like a mustard seed, or like the next parable is like leaven, which a little bit of leaven, yeast, leavens the whole loaf. Well, the mustard seed, he says, how small it is, the smallest of the garden, but grows into this huge tree. He's depicting the growth of the gospel that has started out with a mustard seed with these 12 apostles in this little place in the ancient Near East. And guess what? Have we seen the growth of the gospel? throughout the entire world. We see Christians among all the nations, uh, all throughout the world. And this is Christ describing his kingdom. It's here. And guess what? It starts small with these 12 knucklehead disciples. And it's going to grow throughout the entire world. It's going to permeate the entire world. There's also the, the parable of the good fish and the bad fish. They're separated. Again, who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. And so when we come to chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the major theme of this sermon is the same thing. It's the king and his kingdom. Jesus came as a king to establish his kingdom. The first 16 verses, Jesus uh, provides us with a description of who is in the kingdom. Those that are in the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, these aren't just you know, fortune cookie sayings. Jesus is describing who is in the kingdom, and the people that are in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, have an internal change. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize that they are bankrupt and they have nothing to offer God in a spiritual sense. Until you come to the point where you realize that you have nothing good to offer God, you're, you have no means to salvation. But that's how he opens the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So the first 16 verses describes who's in the kingdom, who's out of the kingdom. Then the rest of the sermon, uh, up until the point we're at today, after Jesus addresses the internal workings, those that are poor in spirit, those who mourn right over their sin, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, after describing the internal workings of God, then Jesus spends pretty much the rest of the sermon describing the outworkings. Once the internals change, then we see how those in God's kingdom uh, behave on the outside, but it first always starts with the inside. Verses 17 of chapter 5, through the rest of the chapter, Jesus addresses how those in the kingdom live in relation to the king's law, and he does this by correcting the external pharisaical interpretations of the law, how they only looked at the law in an external sense. So like when Jesus said, you've heard it was written, thou shalt not commit adultery, they would say, yeah, and we don't, but he says, but I say unto you, he who looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery. In his heart. Okay, so Jesus is correcting their only external adherence. The law was never meant to make somebody externally righteousness. It was meant to show us how sinful we are and to show us inside of our hearts. Okay? And then um, chapter 6 deals with how those in the kingdom live in relation to the presence of God by doing their righteous deeds with the right motives, internal, for the glory of God. Not to be seen by men. You recall Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who like to stand on the street corner, make a big show, hey, look at me, I'm praying, right? He says, don't be like them, for your Father uh, knows what you have need. And, and instead, you're praying to an audience of one. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who go around gloom to try to show, hey, look how spiritual I am. So, chapter 6 deals with those who are in the kingdom, they do all things for the right motives. They don't do the spiritual things to be noticed by others to make themselves look good. Okay, Now we come to chapter 7. The overall theme of chapter 7, the, the final part of his sermon, has to deal with judgment. And we looked at the first few verses of chapter 7, and we see the whole thing. God's talking about judgment. I went through that last week. Now, it's important to understand as we look at the context, as we look at these two verses, 13 and 14, that throughout the sermon, Jesus preaches in a distinctive or a distinguishing manner. What do I mean by that? Jesus is clearly delineating between those who are in the kingdom of heaven and those who are outside the kingdom of heaven. From the Beatitudes to comparing the, the wrong view of God's law and the external operation to the God law to the internal desire to obey God's law, to comparing the way hypocrites practice their righteousness before men to those who are in the kingdom do for the glory of God, uh, comparing the Gentiles who seek after the materialistic things, but those in the kingdom seek first his kingdom, And his righteousness. Jesus preaches in a distinctive manner. He wants it very known. He wants it to be clear who is in his kingdom and who is not. So now, when we're entering verses 13 through the rest of chapter 7, Jesus reaches the crescendo of his sermon. He is at the apex or the the climax of his sermon. And now he turns from teaching to application and the call of the gospel, or the call to respond to what Jesus has taught up to this point. You see, he's pretty much done with his teaching. He's pretty much done laying out his teaching, and now he moves to application. And this is what a good sermon does. Uh, I don't think many of y'all were here two years ago when I started preaching through the sermon uh, but this is the greatest sermon of all time. It was preached by our Lord and Savior. It's the longest recorded sermon we have of him. And Jesus is the best preacher, is he not? He is the mat- most masterful exp- uh, exp- uh, expository preacher ever. So preachers can learn from how Jesus preached here. And he preaches, it, he preaches uh, again, he distinguishes clearly true converts, false converts, who's in who's out who's saved who's unsaved so up until this point again he's he's been teaching now he's done with that he's done with the teaching he lays it all out his kingdom his righteousness and now for the rest of the chapter he he's saying it's time to make a choice time for you to respond what are you going to do with what i have said so far and he does this by giving four warnings each with two contrasts. And this was a common way uh, that Jewish teachers would teach back in the day, with two contrasts. So starting at verse 13 to the rest of the chapter, we have four warnings, each with two contrasts. We have, in our text, we have two gates, two ways, two destinations. And then in verses 15 through 20, you have two trees, two kinds of fruit, Verses 21 to 23, you have two professions of faith, two groups of people at judgment. And then in verses 24 to 27, you have two builders and two two foundations. And this common string throughout the rest of the chapter, throughout these four warnings, the common string is there's two ways. There's the broad way, which leads to destruction, and you have false prophets who lead these people down the broad way, which then leads to false converts in verse 22 who think they're saved at the day of judgment, which leads to the foolish men building their faith and hopes on sand, not the rock of Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus emphasize this at the end of his sermon? Well, you see, just as we have in our day, Jesus had false converts in his day meaning Jesus had people who truly believed that they were on this narrow way that they were part of the family of God that they were in the kingdom of God but they weren't Jesus preached in a way that clearly distinguishes believers versus unbelievers one of the false one of the groups of false converts was the Jews many of them who thought they were saved based upon what not faith in God, but based upon their family lineage, based upon being a descendant of Abraham. John the Baptist corrects this back in chapter 3 in verse 9. He says, Do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So many Jews thought, hey, I'm in. I'm in the kingdom because I am one of Abraham's physical descendants. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not what gets you in. God can even cause these rocks to be raised up as, a, as children unto Abraham. Amen. So Jesus is saying there's only one way. It's not through physical lineage. And this one way is small, it's, and it's narrow. You also had false converts of Jesus' day who thought they were saved because they did good things for God. And later on, next week, we'll look at this text, or the next week, verse 21. These people thought they were saved because they were doing good things for God. He said, Lord, Lord, in verse 21, did we not do all these good things? We didn't do them for ourselves. We did them for you. And Jesus says one of the most sobering words in all of Scripture, depart from me, for I never knew you you workers of lawlessness. You had false converts back in Jesus' day doing things for God. So Jesus wants to be clear who's in, who's out. You also had others, false teachers, who were leading people down the false way. Well, we see the same problem today with false converts and false teachers. People believing that they will go to heaven based upon the wrong thing. There's some that believe that they're going to go to heaven based upon their physical heritage or their physical upbringing. I've done many witnessing in my day, and and being here in the South, oftentimes I get, you know, yeah, I believe I'm going to heaven. Oh, yeah, what are you basing that that on? Well, you know, my daddy was a preacher. Uh, I grew up in church, you know. And then you start to peel back the layers, and you realize, well, uh, they have no love for Christ, no love for his word. They're living just like the, the world. They're putting their faith, many of them, Put their faith in being in a Christian home. And that is not the narrow way, the narrow gate. Or people believe that there's more than one way to heaven and and they're trusting in their own goodness, trusting in their own works to get them into heaven. They may even believe in God. But where are they putting their faith? They're putting their faith in their good works or putting their faith in their baptism putting their faith uh, in saying the sinner's prayer when they were five. But salvation, as we see, is only by faith, not in a sinner's prayer or baptism, but is faith in Christ and Christ alone. These truths apply to us of false converts just as much as it did to Jesus in Jesus' day. And Jesus wants to make clear with this passage that all of mankind is on one of these two paths. There's no in-between, friends. There's no neutrality. There's no other way. Everyone is on one of these two paths. So with that background and with that context, let's dive in to the passage. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The first thing I want to show you with this passage is that because the Christian life is distinctively unique, we must settle in our minds to be hated by the world. The Christian life is distinctive, friends, it's different. Notice in the text how Jesus draws a contrast between these two ways. He says, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are on it. But the way that leads to eternal life is through a narrow gate. Not just the narrow gate, but the way, the whole path is constricted. It's narrow. Now, that word in Verse 14, if you look at your text, the gate is narrow, your version might say small, the way is constricted, or your version might say the way is hard, or the way is uh, narrow, or the way is, um, um, I said constricted, yeah, that leads to life. Now that word, describing the way that leads to life, uh, is translated hard, oh difficult, that was what I was looking for, New King James says difficult. Okay? The word is different from that in verse 13. If you look at where it says the gate is narrow in verse 13, some translation then uses that same word narrow to say the way is narrow. But that word in verse 14 to describe the narrow way or the constricted way has the idea of being pressed and constricted and, and, and small, but it also carries the idea of hardships being pressed in all around you. Matter of fact, this word is often translated in the New Testament as afflicted or troubled or even tribulation. And in the Old Testament, where they translated from Hebrew to Greek, that same word, which was what the Old Testament that Jesus used in his day, that same word is translated often as oppressed. So you could say the gate is is narrow and the way is afflicted or troubled or has tribulation uh, or oppressed even. So the meaning, the way, uh, meaning the way of life for the believer is marked. Listen, it's marked by affliction, tribulation, oftentimes oppression, or even persecution. And this fits in with the rest of the scripture, does it not? The idea of the way that the Christian lives is a life where there is joy, there's peace. Uh, there's all those spiritual blessings, but also there's tribulation. Jesus said to himself in John 16, 33. Uh, he said, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Acts 14, after being stoned almost to death, Paul returns to Iconium where the Jews came from, to stone him. And it says in Acts 14, verse 22, that he was strengthening the, uh, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul also said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, for indeed, he says, when we were with you, we kept telling you over and over in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. Now, that word is the same word in our text. The way is constricted, or the way is hard, the way is narrow. That's the same word. And, and that flies in the face of many of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that we see today, where any hardship in life, any affliction Any oppression, any persecution is not from the hand of God to discipline and to love his children or even from the hand of God allowing the enemy to do these things for his greater purpose or to show you a lesson or to sanctify you. No, but any trial, tribulation, oppression, any of it is from the enemy, Satan, which I'm not doubting that. But it's all from him and you just have to have enough faith to speak it out of existence it's not God doing that it's all attributed to the devil let me tell you God disciplines those he loves and you want to go disobey God he's going to discipline you don't blame it on the devil it could actually be God disciplining you because he loves you amen so in uh, not only does the narrow way include tribulation and trials but it also includes persecution Second Timothy 3.12 says indeed all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, not some, it says all those who live, seek to live godly, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that interesting? Some people take that, and when they see things like people who desire to live godly, sometimes they substitute that with pietistic, meaning they want to just be like a a hermit inside their closet and live holy and kind of be a monastic type of, I'm just going to just be so holy by myself. Well, who's going to persecute you for that? When you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you're actually speaking godly things to people around you. And that's where the persecution comes. John 15, 20, remember Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you're born again in Christ, guess what? It says you're a slave of Christ. And Jesus says that a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, he says they're gonna persecute you. Sometimes I ask, if I'm not getting persecuted, now look, we don't go out looking for persecution. That's the bad attitude to have, and I've I've seen that sometimes. People just love it, right? Uh, We don't go out looking for persecution, but sometimes I wonder if we're not suffering some sort of persecution. Maybe not physically, uh, but if we're not suffering some sort of persecution, maybe we're just not being a gospel witness in obedience to Christ. Especially in this day. And so we must be contented in our minds, brothers and sisters, to be different from the world, to be despised and to be rejected by the worldly system, which hates God and hates his truth. The problem with many Christians today and many denominations, many churches, and even many pastors, is they want to be liked by the world. They have this desire to fit in and to be relevant to the world, and therefore, because this becomes an idol, the idol of I just I want to be winsome and liked. I don't want people to not like me. I want to win them over and be nice, so then maybe I can tell them about Jesus. The problem with that is that truth is often sacrificed in order to be liked and accepted by a world system that hates God. Why are we trying to be so? fitting in with a world system that hates God. We need to be content in our mind to not be part of the world, to have a distinctive journey. And we also must be contented in our mind to be rejected, not just from the God-hating world, but from many of the Christian circles who profess Christianity, who profess that they're on the narrow way, who claim to be in the kingdom, but then condemn you for not being nice or condemn you for being too extreme or condemn you for being legalistic, right? You have a certain standard. I believe this is holiness. Oh, you're just legalistic, right? Or you're not being winsome enough. That word winsome I hear all the time. We've got to be winsome. Uh, No, they hate God and we need to give them the truth in love. Yeah, we can absolutely in a sense be winsome by giving them truth in love. Amen. But the the narrative for many Christians are we need to be winsome and that usually means, you know, don't confront the truth. Don't confront culture with the truth. You know, just kind of be quiet and let them do what they want to do. But you are different. You've been set apart, friends. You're not like the world. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, the Apostle Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He uses Old Testament Israel language, how he chose Israel to be his possession. He's now applying that to, to Christians. You are his chosen race, And why? The verse says it. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are not to try to be friends with the world. We are on a different journey. We need to be okay with that. And instead of conforming ourselves to the broad way which leads to destruction, the worldly way, We need to learn to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, verse 2. We are on a different path, and it is not an easy way. The Christian path, the Christian journey, listen, it's a war. It's It's a battle. We can never sleep, friends. We can never slumber because the enemy is seeking to destroy you. Did you know that? If you are in Christ, he's seeking to destroy your walk. He's seeking to destroy your family, your marriage, your relationships. As I told the members today, the enemy is seeking to destroy this church, a church that stands for truth and won't compromise to the whims of the world. So we can never sleep. We can never slumber. We must always be putting on the armor of God so that we can withstand the darts, the onslaught of the enemy. So that is the distinction between those who are on the narrow way that leads to life, the constricted, the hard way, versus those who are on the broad way. And we uh, we just need to make up our minds now that we're not going to fit in with the world. We're on a different journey. However, this brings me to my next point. To be on the journey to heaven, there's only one way to enter, and that is through the narrow gate. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. This is a command, my friends. Before you can be on the narrow way that leads to life, you first must come by way of the narrow gate. And that word means small. It's narrow. Listen to me. Only one may enter at a time. Only one. Now, children, I want you to listen to me. This is for you. You must enter through the narrow gate by yourself. Your parents can't do it for you. Children, your parents have already gone through the narrow gate. They're on the way, and they're pleading for you to come with them. They're saying, come, but listen, this narrow, small gate, children, only one person enters at a time. And you want to ask yourself, am I trusting in my family home? Am I trusting in my Christian home? Do Do I believe I'm going to heaven because my parents are going to heaven? Or have you yourself entered the narrow way? You must do it. Your parents, they can help you, they can encourage you, they can plead with you, but children, you must enter it on your own. The parallel passage in Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Similar illustration, he uses the word strive. This word in the Greek language means to labor, that there's some effort into it. You are striving. It's like when Christian was knocking on the door and no answer, he didn't give up. The passage we looked at last week in verse seven is a perpetual knocking. It's those who are the knocking ones. It will be open to you. So God doesn't want you to just, ah, let me give a little knock. Eh, okay, no one's coming. I'm gonna go back to my old ways. No, he wants you to knock and to keep knocking. And the illustration is. In, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, you know, shows us that, how he kept knocking and knocking and knocking. That's the only way to get in to the narrow way which leads to life, is through that gate. We have many professing Christians, adults, who from the outside, they look like they're on the narrow way, but are imposters because they never came through the one gate and only way, and that's through the narrow gate. And John Bunyan illustrates this point beautifully in Pilgrim's Progress. While uh, Christian is on his journey, he's on the narrow way, he sees two men jump the wall, because there were two walls guarding the way. He sees two men jump the wall and begin walking with him towards the celestial city. Their names was Formalist, and hypocrisy. Christian sees them and asks, where did you come from and where are you going? They answered and said, we were born in the land of vain glory, and we're going to praise at the celestial city. Christian answered and said, why didn't you come through the gate, which stands at the beginning of the way? Do you not know that it is written that he That comes not in by the door, but climbs some other way as a thief and a robber? They answered and said that they were told by those in their city that to go to the gate for the entrance was too far to travel. And therefore, their usual way was to make a shortcut of it and to climb over the wall, which they had done. Then they go on to say, to tell Christian, what does it matter to you? All that matters is that we're in, we're on the way. They even said, Look, we plan to obey the king's laws and ordinances just like you, so there's really no difference between the two. And so they continue uh, to walk until they get to the hill of difficulty. Now, remember, goodwill told Christian, You stay on that narrow path, it's, it's straight. The hill of difficulty was the narrow way. And so, after being refreshed by the word of God, Christian sets up the hill of difficulty. Well, formalists and hypocrisy, they look at it like, "Eh, ah, that looks hard. They see two little paths going each way around the hill, and they look like like they kind of curved around, and that maybe they would go and meet Christian at the end of the hill of difficulty. So, formalist goes one way, and hypocrisy goes the other way. Formalist and hypocrisy thought it would be too difficult to go up, and they both go off the path to their utter destruction. That's it. No longer do you see formalist and hypocrisy. And this depicts many false converts. They do not go through the narrow gate, but they come in some other way. They think they're a Christian, they act like a Christian. He even looks like a Christian to others. But when faced with trials, persecutions, hardships, they go the other way to their ultimate destruction. This is where you see a lot of so-called Christians apostatize from their faith. Something bad happens in their life and it leads them down a path to ultimately rejecting what they thought they once believed. Now let me be clear, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that once someone is born again, the Spirit has been deposited in them as a pledge and that they will never, ever fall away from the faith. Not because they're good, because Jesus says no one can snatch them out of my hand. And in the book of uh, one of John's epistles, uh, it says of those who left the faith, uh, the Apostle John says they went out from us because they were never among us. But they went out from us to show that they were never actually among us. So, when you see people say, you know, I used to be a born again Christian, I believed, and I just got smart, and now I don't believe. They never had saving faith. They were never born again, because one who is, who Christ saves, he keeps. This begs the question, though. This should force us to ask the question to us Did you get on the Christian way by going through the narrow gate? Or did you jump in and just start walking? How did you get to be on the narrow way? And what is this narrow gate? Have you been there? Is that the way you started this path? Or... Did you come some other way and just thought Christianity was good, so I'm going to start just doing the things that these Christians do, and, oh, I'm, I'm doing what they're doing. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible, so I must be on the way to the celestial city. Did you come through the narrow gate? Now, this narrow gate, my friends, is Jesus Christ himself. He said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one, no one, friends, comes to the Father but through me, through the narrow gate, the wicked gate. And the way to enter through the narrow gate is only through repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Repentance involves godly sorrow for sin, leading one to hate it and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. Have you been through the gate? Having faith in Christ, saving faith, means believing that Jesus Christ is your only hope for salvation and putting all of your faith and all of your trust in him alone. Have you been through the narrow gate, my friends? This is what it means to enter through that small gate. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The famous hymn, Rock of Ages, sums this up great where it says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy laws' demands. You can't get to heaven by your good works, by the things you do. It says, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Your works, even your, uh, your tears, cannot atone for your sin. It says, thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the small gate. Have you been there, friends? Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the small gate if you've not come through that narrow gate, friends, you are on the broad way which leads to destruction. But praise God for his grace. This broad gate, it's so wide, it includes anything and everything outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's anything from atheism to agnosticism to any religion that's outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any works-based system, even good good religions, moral religions that have a works-based system that are outside the gospel of Jesus Christ are part of this broad way. Like Mormonism, like Jehovah's Witness, even the Roman Catholicism doctrine, which I grew up in, Now, I'm not saying that some Roman Catholics aren't saved. Uh, They're saved despite Roman Catholic doctrine. But the Roman Catholic doctrine is that you're saved by faith plus works, grace plus extra merit through Christ plus other mediators like Mary. Okay? That is a false gospel, and those who, are, who believe that are on the broad way. Even this idea of easy, believe it, be, uh, easy believism okay? is on the broad way. This is why Paul the Apostle was so adamant in Galatians, where he said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be Accursed, he says. As we've said before, and I say again, if any man is preaching to you a different gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. That word means to be damned by God. Not very winsome, Paul. You're not being very nice, right? But Paul was so adamant because he understood that there's only two ways. And when somebody's teaching a false way, that's using the words like God, that's using the word like uh, faith, grace, that are using Christian words but twisting them and presenting a false gospel, Paul says let them be damned because they're leading people on the broad way. You understand that? It's not a time to be winsome. When people are preaching a false gospel, we need to have the courage and the backbone that the Apostle Paul has. Amen? Amen. So friends, I want to ask you, which gate will you choose? Jesus confronts his listeners with the reality of these two gates, these two paths, these two ways of life, and he's pressing them to make a decision, to decide for yourself whom you will serve. What's it going to be? The broad way, the easy way, which leads to destruction, or the narrow way? the constricted way, the hard way. Friends, we need to count the cost. Are you willing to suffer the reproaches of Christ for his name? Those of you who have come by the narrow gate, you are on the constricted or the hard way. You you remember and you know you've gone through the beginning at the small gate. I want to encourage you to be content, grow in your contentment with not fitting in to the world and not fitting in to the idea of cultural Christianity. And be encouraged that Christ will be with you always. He will be there to refresh you. Just as John Bunyan in his book, Christian was constantly falling, getting injured, but he always had somebody from the king sent to refresh him. He had the presence of God with him always to teach, to help you, and to help you with your spiritual armor so that you can withstand the arrows from the enemy. So my encouragement to you, dear Christian, is to press on, good and faithful soldier. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you that we are undeserving Lord, that we deserve to be on the Broadway, but Lord, by your grace, you have called us out of darkness. You have opened our eyes to the truth. You've opened up our heart to receive the gospel, and you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We owe an insurmountable debt to you, but you paid it upon us the cross. And we thank you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in being content with the Christian way. Help us, God, to realize if we have come by another way, that if we didn't come by the small gate, the narrow gate, (coughs) through faith and repentance in Christ, help us, Lord. Help us to realize that, Lord, so that we can repent and call upon your name and enter the narrow way that leads to life. Help us, God, to have this view when we're talking to others, to know that they are on one or two paths so that we can look at them not in a physical sense but in a spiritual sense so that we can share with them the words of life. We could pray for them for their salvation. And, Lord, for those who are on the narrow way, they're on the constricted way, and and it seems like, Father, that they're just so discouraged, Father, with all the things going on around them, all the trials and the tribulations and all the things that can easily bring us to despair, Lord, I pray that you would refresh those today, refresh them, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and with your word refresh them lord as we take of the lord's supper god that they would nourish upon the truths of christ that you encourage them god to get up and to keep walking towards the celestial city and that we would bring many many souls with us we give you honor and praise in jesus